Game Pool Books, episode 47. What I know is... This is on chapter 10 of The Subtle Knife by Philip Pullman. The Shaman, in which we see another sort of theft to go along with the stolen and recovered alethiometer and subtle knife. We might also consider literary thefts, perhaps cinematic ones, perpetrated by Pullman and his jackdaw demon. Though I wasn't able to detect any direct references to other works this time, I have just read C.S. Lewis's uh, That Hideous Strength for the first time. In that third and most overtly polemical book in his so-called Space Trilogy, a severed head plays an important role, and I don't think it's likely, but it's not impossible that Pullman might be responding to that image in his recovery here of Stanislaus Grumman from a severed head to a fully embodied character. Even the wardrobe in that first chapter of The Golden Compass, Pullman claims is an unconscious reference at best to C.S. Lewis's fantasies. But when we see the shaman reveal the turquoise ring and we see the effect it has on Lee Scoresby, that certainly carries some sort of a general Proustian flavor of a recovery of lost time. To go back to another classic 20th century book. But primarily the concordances that are in here in this chapter are internal ones within Pullman's own works. We've already heard about the Yenisei. Here we see Lee and Hester Amid the chaos of fishermen, ship owners, and authorities, drifters, and disordered animals, all mixed up while Lee and Hester are moving purposefully. He is, in fact, witch like in his powers of memory here, finding his way despite the swamp the road has become and the floods up and down the river. With his practical consideration, putting his balloon into storage and hiring a boat, he recalls his first introduction to the story during the Egyptian's journey north. His slow progress, the debris on the river, including a corpse floating by, place this chapter in the tradition of Huckleberry Finn, but also make it a direct forerunner to Pullman's own La Belle Sauvage. The strongest details here I think, are the Jimson weed ointment, the pungent cigars Lee smokes to keep the insects at bay. They highlight the peculiarity of this last leg of his long search. As for Hester, she sat taciturn in the bow, her long ears flat against her skinny back, and her eyes narrowed. He was used to her silence, and she to his. They spoke when they needed to. It's a little passage there that an academic writer and teacher, Sally Munt, makes good use of in a paper that's in one of these anthologies. Um, I haven't seen much scholarship done on the Lee Scoresby character, um, but look that one up if you get the chance. It's, it's worth a read. Um, now, repeatedly, the nature of this disorder 
is made parallel to our own contemporary concern with global warming. One obvious instance of this comes in the remark that everything there should have been under the snow, but with its melting, that obscures the rock, the height of the house that they'd heard about, and the landing stage is actually now six feet under. So there's another omen of death. Hester's quip is surely shared by the narrator here. I hope they had sense enough to build the village high then. And uh, they did. So introductions are made, um, smoothed over by that gesture universal in the north of laying down of arms. The headman of the village, with his eyes lost in wrinkles, his wolverine demon, becomes more impressive still by trading greetings with Lee in a half dozen languages before they find one, which one it is left unnamed, in which they can converse. Along with his respects, Lee offers the smokeweed, which is just what Lyra had lied about the Egyptians bringing north with them when she was captured by Tartars near Bolvanger. The polygamy of this tribe, where we hear mention of one of his wives taking the offered gift, could be another way of highlighting, well, by contrast, the uh, bachelorhood, which the shaman will also inevitably reference. And uh, the headman and the other villagers confirm that Grumman is their kinsman by adoption, that he is there, he's alive, and what's more, he's waiting for Lee. First the headman says, we have been waiting for you, and then we have been expecting you he said again. Um, so there's that issue of translation there. Did he say the same words and it was simply translated two slightly different ways in the narration? Anyhow, he's going to take him to the other world. That's what Lee hears and he isn't sure that he heard it right. So he gets it confirmed for him when he talks to Dr. Grumman. Lee goes along with this, as you say, he says, just as he follows physically the way through the woods, scooping Hester up, this forest path, muddy like everything else, a distance of some ten long bow shots, which is an interesting unit of measure, at least it's not a force of arms. It takes them to a place where nature and society seem still to be in harmony, clearing in the larches. And from among the dried flowers and the pine sprays, a bright yellow eye looked out. This is the decorations around the, uh, the hut. It contrasts strongly with the decorations of Svalbard over under Jofa Ragnarsson, where there are no demons, of course. It approaches the splendor of Ruta Scotti's brutal tiger fang necklace. 
again, the emphasis is on respect. And there's a new reason that we're also given for this, that his heart is sick, the shaman, that is. And so that I, watching him all the time, it's like the reader, too, um, and the demon makes a gesture with the spray of cloud pine, which could remind us of Lyra's test at the house of the witch consul, Dr. Lancelius in Trollicent. She had to pick out the cloud pine branch used by Serafina Pecola. Finally, we meet Joparry, standing in the doorway, gaunt, blazing-eyed, dressed in skins and furs, black hair streaked with gray, his jaw jutted strongly, and his osprey demon sat glaring on his fist. This is the shaman academic Lee has come to find. Now, in Liar's world, it seems there's not a federal United States, but this independent country of Texas within New Denmark. That's how Lee introduces himself, and uh, says they'll talk for a spell. <laughs> they exchange po poetic niceties that are keyed to the wind. The winds having blown Lee a long way from home, and strange winds blowing these days. It's almost like during Azriel's meeting with Mrs. Coulter by the Bridge to the Stars, only it's vastly toned down. The sun is warm. Rather than going anywhere for now, they might sit on a bench in the agreeable light in this wind, which partly at least does come from that other world. The man's hospitality is genuine. He offers Lee coffee. He notes his accent is English, not German. That corroborates what the director of the observatory had said last time he had such hospitality. In large part, Lee must summarize the events of the first book. He talks about everything that happened from when John Fa and he met, and includes what he learned from Lyra and Serafina. Yet again, we come back to Azriel's trick with the head, which Lyra told him about after a fencing lesson, and which she recently dreamt about. They didn't look closely, those scholars of Jordan, whereas Grumman's specialized knowledge seems to range, or his reputation anyhow to vary, from the ocean depths to the northern lights. Lee alone, so far, has managed to track down this man who appeared out of nowhere, what, ten, twelve years ago? But why was he able to do it? Why was he the only one able to do it? He says it's not out of an academic interest, but he's been drawn by his concern about the child Lyra. As he thinks, that's what the witches think too, that she's important. And there's a kind of question here. Did he get it wrong? He's asking about the, the language barrier with the headman, about taking Dr. Grimm into another world. Well, the question could be a much more general one than that. And then he asks about that name, Jopari. Is it tribal, some kind of title? And this becomes the entree for the big reveal. 
When I wish I knew how long Pullman had in mind when he had Lord Asriel play that trick on the scholars in the very first chapter. For Joe Parry is Grumman's own true name, John Perry. In this way, he becomes translated for us into the heroic father Will has always imagined he had somewhere. But much as we might agree about Lee's concern for Lyra, he claims that what brought the aeronaut there was something different. And he opened his hand. In the palm lay something that Lee could see but not understand. He saw a ring of silver and turquoise, a Navajo design. He saw it clearly and he recognized it as his own mother's. He knew its weight and the smoothness of the stone and the way the silversmith had folded the metal over more closely at the corner where the stone was chipped, and he knew how the chipped corner had worn smooth because he had run his fingers over it many, many times, years and years ago in his boyhood in the sage lands of his native country. As language fails Lee, as he grasps for purchase, we're told he felt undone. He felt like a child again. His voice was tight and shaky as he said, where did you get that? Take it, said Grumman, or Perry. Its work is done. It summoned you. Now I don't need it. This is something like Asriel's mysterious power of calling for what he needs, and then neglecting the offer Lyra makes of him, uh, of the alethiometer. It's been 40 years since Lee saw that, we're told. It, this gives us an approximate age for the aeronaut. But there's never any explanation of how uh, Grumman came in possession of it, how he used it to draw Lee there. So we can only speculate. We have to imagine this is among the many things that he can do that Lee doesn't understand and some that he doesn't even see. Um, all Lee can say is, well... I'm shaken, sir. I think I need to hear what you can tell me. And we never hear either Lee's story of the ring. Not only how Will's father could have ended up with it. So instead, Grumman tells us some of what we've already deduced. That while Azriel is the first so spectacularly to open the way between worlds, Grumman, or Perry, too, was a soldier and explorer who was looking for a rent in the fabric of the world, that he found it that passed through unexpectedly at last. We hear how his search went on, a search now for the way back, but also for lost companions who passed through with him, two others. They were unaware of what had happened until they reached a town in the New World, 
Whereas we've seen other characters that have been able to tell instantly that they were in another world as soon as they passed through. The confusion here must be due to the blizzard, which is also what makes any search for the way back futile. There's no choice for them but to stay where they've ended up, and they have to contend then with that ghoul or apparition haunting the world, the implacable specters. The final loss of his companions is not in the blizzard, but due to those specters. They are abominable, we're told. Might well believe it, though in his letters we never got the sense that Perry was that close with his team. The conflict that was set up there in the letters with Nelson, or whatever his real name might have been, very like the conflict that gets set up with the pale-haired man, um, a sergeant who does have a name, but it escapes me now. Anyway, it's left unresolved. Instead, he finds doorways through to other worlds, and with a little searching, he finds his way into this one, Lyra's world, and Lee's. So the window he came through and the way home to Will's world is buried in the blizzard, but in recompense, he meets a marvel, his dean, Cyan Couture. His interpretation of the demon's role is very much to the point here, that those in Lee's world cannot conceive of worlds where demons are a silent voice in the mind and no more. Instead, this is equal to his astonishment at learning that part of his own nature was female and bird-formed and beautiful. Learning about a part of himself, even late in life, is kind of like how he's learning from these Arctic peoples. It's kind of like how Lee learned of Perry's own whereabouts from the sled driver when the astronomers had been unable to help. And that, in the scheme of things, is really the same kind of learning happening. It's happening in different points in life. It's happening in different connections between cultures. And indeed, not just interculturally, but interuniversally. Perry knows the answer to many mysteries, we're told but he doesn't share too much of these for now. We can only speculate, again, as to why he took the name Stanislaus Grumman and chose the German Academy to be the one to join, perhaps because a thesis defended in debate was a faster process from, uh, for, for one so uh, well-informed as he was, being from a world more scientifically advanced, and so he works and is contented in a way, but misses his own world. The way he frames this is to ask if Lee is a married man, as everyone asks him. And he says, Grumman that is, that he had a wife and son, his only child, with the hint of the liturgical formula there. And once again, the impossibility of returning gets the emphasis here. Is there really no way back? Now, we get the hint that there's some of the other knowledge he's acquired 
through joining the Skull Cult. He's made discoveries. He knows about an ointment made of blood moss. He knows about dust, though he doesn't explain what exactly he means by that. And seeing Lee's expression, he talks about how it's frightened the theologians and he is frightened by them. The same kind of turning around of the, uh, the feelings and uh, surprise of others. And in this way, he makes himself a counterpart to Lyra's father. Grumman, or Perry, knows what Asriel's doing, and he knows why. He calls it the greatest task in history, not 10 or 12 or 40 years, but 35,000 years of history. But his heart is diseased beyond the powers of this world to cure. That hints at a possible medical cure back in his own world, perhaps. But we'll see the true nature of this malady is really another sense of heartache. And finally, we come to the point that Will's father knows something Lyra's father doesn't, something Lord Asriel needs if he's going to accomplish his goal. You see, I was intrigued by that haunted world where the specters fed on human consciousness. I wanted to know what they were, how they had come into being. And as a shaman, I can discover things in the spirit where I cannot go in the body. And I spent much time in trance, exploring that world. I found that the philosophers there centuries ago had created a tool for their own undoing, an instrument they called the subtle knife. It had many powers, more than they'd guessed when they made it, far more than they know even now, and somehow in using it they had let the specters into their world. Well, I know about the subtle knife and what it can do, and I know where it is, and I know how to recognize the one who must use it, and I know what he must do in Lord Asriel's cause. There's a lot there. Mm. The goal of finding the bearer of the subtle knife involves all this knowledge that he's gained in trance. We might wonder why he couldn't go in trance to where the bearer is, uh, say. Maybe he has. Maybe that's part of what he's not telling us. Or why he can't go back to visit his own world in that same way. And again, maybe he has done. Maybe Will really was in the presence of his father during all those games of his. It's impossible to say. Now, there isn't a really a, a clear hint just yet of what these powers of the knife are, but they certainly are connected to its power of releasing the specters, um, which I find very, very interesting. Um, we'll have to come back to that when we learn a little bit more about what the knife is supposed to do in Perry's understanding. Um, at last, <laughs> Lee has a chance to respond to all this. He offers some resistance, but it's only in the course of trying to make sense of what he's heard. That word undoing 
appeared again in uh, Perry's description of what happened to the world of Chittagatse. A similar kind of undoing Lee here has to overcome. He has to pull himself back together. <laughs> this is the craziest damn idea I ever heard in my life, said Lee. <laughs> um, Grumman offers him money, which might have swayed him once, but he insists that he didn't come here for the gold. I came here. I came here to see if you were alive, like I thought you were. Well, my curiosity's kind of satisfied on that point. I'm glad to hear it. And there's another angle to this thing, too. You see, that little girl, Lyra, well, she's the reason I set out to help the witches in the first place. You say you brought me here with that Navajo ring. Maybe that's so, and maybe it ain't. What I know is, I came here because I thought I'd be helping Lyra. I ain't never seen a child like that. If I had a daughter of my own, I hope she'd be half as strong and brave and good. Now I heard you knew of some object. I didn't know what it might be. That confers a protection on anyone who holds it. And from what you say, I think it must be this subtle knife. So this is my price for taking you into the other world, Dr. Kerman. Not gold, but that subtle knife. I don't want it for myself. I want it for Lyra. Lee, again, never explains where he heard the story that Grumman had or knew of such an object in the first place. This makes me think that it's this detail, which is what the shaman used the turquoise ring for, to implant the notion that he had an object of such power to give Lee that initial push to go and find him. For an object that confers such a protection, couldn't it just as well be that ring? At least that's the case for Lee, the way he holds and runs his fingers over and over it. There's a kind of protection there that he derives from it. Takes him back to his youth, and yet allows him to be the brave, clever, crafty, lucky aeronaut that he is as an adult. Now he gets Grumman or Perry to swear to put Lyra under its protection. And when he asks if he trusts his oath and that Lee can name anything to have him swear on, he has him swear on whatever it was that made him turn down the love of the witch. This is just another of those things which we aren't told outright what it is, but I think we can guess that it's the love he has for his family back in his world. Now, he warns Lee that doing this, uh, putting her under the protection of the knife, may put Lyra into greater danger because of what the bearer of the knife must do, and Lee accepts this. It's too late, I guess his mind is made up. The oath is sworn, and it's bound by, well, I guess the strongest thing that this very knowledgeable shaman academic knows about. He wants whatever little chance of safety 
there might be. And now they turn to talk about the wind again. This kind of um, edge to their conversation enters in. Have you been, have you been too sick to observe the weather? Uh, Dr. Grumman doesn't rise to that bait. He takes his few belongings in the deerskin bag, gives the villagers a blessing before he goes, and the breeze is already stirring. The fog, for the first time, has a promise of clearing up. And they uh, get on their journey. They speed down with the current this time. And we get another reminder of Lee's relationship to his demon. They skim into the main current so fast Lee was afraid for Hester, crouching just inside the gunwale. But she was a seasoned traveler. He should have known that. Why was he so damn jumpy? <laughs> Lee's voice, or maybe Hester's, comes through in the narration there. Again, he doesn't talk to her, but he hears her voice in his mind, which I find interesting, given what Dr. Grumman calls the, uh, the role of the demon. And it's connected again to the wind and the water, um, danger and protection, and how he can be sort of on the the cusp of of the one, uh, while while sort of doing something which will ultimately mitigate the the danger. The closing scenes of the chapter take us back to the balloon, uh, but it's a close call. Some soldiers just arrived in town of commandeered Lee's property, along with everything else in the town. <laughs> the Imperial Guard of Muscovy. In Lyra's world, they're allied with the church and are as vehemently uh, so as the Soviet Union was allied to the communist ideology in the world John Perry left around the time he left it. And, frankly, they proved to be just about as much of a paper tiger as the Soviet Union in the final analysis here. In need of rest, but there's no chance for it, we see Grumman's toughness brought out in the light of his mysterious illness, that old twinning of the wound and the nobility of the Arthurian Fisher King, the Grail Keeper. He sort of plays that role here. Once again, the meaning of the North has taken on something apocalyptic. That's the destination of this regiment, just as it was of the bands of the rebel angels in Shittagatsi. And as we'll see, part of Pullman's brilliance in these books, and he puts himself in a long line of English authors, the sort that Lewis points out in his allegory of love. Pullman keeps this greatest war ever known largely off stage in the third book. Ever the pragmatist, he minds it for an earthy detail that the, pi the price of the boat that Lee borrowed has already doubled. <laughs> Naturally, Lee is moved by anxiety about his balloon, his own great asset, perhaps being stolen from him now on the excuse of the exigencies of wartime. Requisitioned yesterday, indeed. 
Hester's ear flick, wordless communication, prompts Lee to play his last card. A bluff, but a convincing one. And is couched in card game language, but also with the overtones of Armageddon. He says, he has an authority that trumps the guard. He showed the warehouseman the ring he'd taken from the finger of the dead scrailing on Nova Zembla. Presumably, the symbol on the ring is a cross, although we're never told that. Whatever the symbol on the ring is, the authority it represents is deeply flawed in Pullman's telling. But here, the ring finally gets used to represent the true authority, namely Lee's devotion to Lyra, and his action here, of course, on behalf of John Perry's devotion to the thing he loves most, his own family. And we also get the confirmation of Hester's foresight when she urged him to take the ring and of her tenderness, urging him not to be too hard on himself. This moment also mirrors the Navajo ring that's used by Grumman, perhaps used by Grumman, to summon Lee. And that comparison is fascinating between the two rings. It suggests that Grumman, too, is probably bluffing to some extent. But maybe a bluff is part of the spell, part of what makes it work. It suggests Grumman might not be entirely trustworthy, but if he's like Lee... He's acting out of some higher principle than merely telling the whole truth. Of course, telling a fiction can be much more powerful, as we're seeing. We'll have to think about whether or not he breaks his oath to Lee. And Lee certainly forgets here, as the reader probably does, that this isn't actually his final card to play. He might have used the little red flower given him by Serafina Pecola to call her in need. He might have used some of the latent powers of the shaman, although the emphasis is on how tired, worn out he is. So anyhow, this is how the story goes. We get this salute and the puzzlement that goes with it, that are full of ambiguity, we're left in suspense as to whether the bluff has worked. The scene here is delightfully cinematic, as Lee and Perry conspire on the wharf while the balloon is provisioned. <clears throat> Where did you get that ring, said Grumman, off a dead man's finger. Kind of risky using it, but I couldn't see another way of getting my balloon back. You reckon that sergeant suspected anything? Of course he did, but he's a disciplined man. He won't question the church. Well, I promised you a wind, Mr. Scoresby. I hope you like it. We should watch for this power of questioning. Authority comes up in unexpected places. We should also watch for this power of the wind and the weather, the elements. It comes up in all kinds of interesting ways. It already has done. That blizzard that separated Grumman from going back where he wanted to go once he discovered what he thought he was looking for. Um, we'll see it in the next few chapters happening again and again, too. 
It always recalls the witches who sent Lee with a friendly wind before when he started looking for Lee, uh, for Dr. Grimman. Um, and it brings us back to that passage after Bullvanger, when they physically pulled the balloon, that wild idea Lyra had finally realized. Because when the witches were pulling the balloon, of course, they had this conversation about destiny and free will. Lee is impatient to be back up in the air beyond the rooftops of the town, but he still does all the normal things he needs to do with all his normal care, preparing for turbulence in that other world. He gives his close attention even to the useless compass needle, maybe thinking of the alethiometer. The suspense is enacted physically. He's giving the order to let go of the ropes, and a conflicting order rings out for the men to hold on to them. They are held in the act of casting off. Two of the men let go while the other two hold on. The lurch there is horrible for us, too. It's one of the most wrenching passages in the series. One let go, and his rope lashed itself loose from the bollard, but the other man, feeling the rope lift, instinctively clung on instead of letting go. We had seen this happen once before and dreaded it. Poor man's demon, a heavy-set husky, howled with fear and pain from the ground as the balloon surged up toward the sky, and five endless seconds later it was over. The man's strength failed, he fell, half-dead, and crashed into the water. In proper movie fashion, the shots of those most ferociously trained and most lavishly equipped soldiers whiz by harmlessly. Lee, like us, feels his heart lift with it as the balloon rises. That reference back to the conversation with Serafina Pecola in the balloon is made explicit now, and a change is worked backwards into his character at that time. This is a process Pullman avails himself of more than once because Lee said then it was only a job flying, but he hadn't meant it, we're told. What could be better in this life? Fair wind behind and new world in front. That euphoria of being alive is made poignant not so much just by the futile volley of rifle fire, but, although that is exhilarating, as it is by the wish that Lee has. It's like his reflection after killing the Skraling, his wish that someone need not have died to secure his own continued life and freedom. It's so damned easy to do, and if you don't let go at once, there's no hope for you. Now, I don't know quite what to make of that, if the balloon is this kind of image for winging upwards with imagination and uh, romantic longing for adventure and, and all that. Um, you have to let go at the right time, is, is what I'm taking from it. Anyhow, the shaman says, you managed that very well. Well done, Mr. Scoresby, well done, narrator. Now we settle down and fly. I would be grateful for those furs. The air is still cold. So he's a bit like Lyra here. 
after that earlier rescue from Bullfanger. And we'll see how she and Will are getting along next time. Thanks for listening.